Hi everyone! This is your host Harmit, and you're listening to Tobin Talks. Hi everyone! Thank you so much for tuning into Tobin Talks today. Today we'll be talking about cybersecurity and poetry. Interesting combination. <laughs> First up, our research and tech editor, Ella, is speaking with Mario Labar, the chief information officer at the University of Manitoba, as well as the director of information security and compliance, Patrick McCarthy. My name is Mario Labar. I'm the Chief Information Officer at the University of Manitoba. Over to you, Pat. And I'm Patrick and McCarthy, and I'm the Director of Information Security and Compliance. Okay, thank you so much. Okay, okay, so let's start off with some background information about the IST Department and the Information Security and Compliance Unit. So IST, the unit I had, is... Um, in the uh, Vice President Administration portfolio, it is comprised of about 190 staff uh, spread across uh, all the services that you would expect in a full-service IT shop, which are things like service desk, so endpoint, uh, infrastructure management, so things like network, servers, and storage, application development and application maintenance, as well as uh, planning and governance, so solution okay. architecture, vendor management, uh, university IT governance. And then we have a smaller group uh, made of about five staff uh, that is information security and compliance. And Patrick heads that group, and he's the best person to describe kind of what they do. Okay. Thanks, Maria. Yeah, so our team is of five, and uh, our areas uh, that we provide service to the university is under uh, security awareness and training. Uh, vulnerability management, our threat risk assessment program, uh, incident response, and security policy procedure and standards. Moving on to cybersecurity, could you tell me a bit about cybersecurity? Cybersecurity is all about basically the protection of mm -hmm. the university, faculty, staff, and students from any type of cyber harm. So mm -hmm. in our program, most of our programs built around that. Uh, and again, it's everything from our threat risk assessment programs, our phishing exercises, mm -hmm. the cybersecurity uh, uh, awareness month in October mm -hmm. is heavily set on phishing and protection mechanisms to protect the data at the university. Thank you. And I know um, the theme for this year was fight phishing, ruin a cyber criminal's day. Could you tell me um, how common are phishing attacks reported to the ISD department? Can we get, um, I don't have the number of phishing attacks, but mm -hmm. what I do have is, you know, we, on average in a month, we get 30 million emails that try to get delivered to the university. Of that 30 million, about 93% are blocked by our hygiene software product, uh, and about 7% get in. But within that 7% is still a huge amount of uh, phishing emails that get to the university. Mm -hmm. So we get them. Uh, throughout the day, throughout the evening, basically 7 by 24, 365, including mm -hmm. holidays, the hackers do not go to sleep. <laughs> what the university is doing to fight phishing is mainly that hygiene. Yes, it's our hygiene product, email hygiene product. Mm -hmm. and it's got a lot of rules uh, built into it, baked into it. 
uh, that detect and lock and deny the email from coming into the recipient's email okay. box. We also do uh, phishing simulations, usually about twice a year, and we always focus one on Cybersecurity Month, and uh, we focus the, the phishing simulations because there, there's such an onslaught of, of those types of attacks because they want to go after the end user and, and their credentials. So on average, we probably have in our phishing simulations 3.5% that actually enter credentials, you know, passwords or email address, etc. cetera, uh, in our simulations. If we didn't have a program in place, the average industry number is 32.4, I believe, 30.4% oh, okay. uh, people entering credentials. And if you have a program in place for about a year, it usually drops on average to a 5%. So at 3.5, we're still good. We're pretty good. Mm -hmm. But it's still about 300 people that are entering their IDs and passwords with potential compromises if it was a real uh, phishing email. So it's important to note there, Gila, that there's sort of two elements. Mm -hmm. One is you ask, you know, what is the university doing? Yes. So you're, you're part of the university, just by the way. And so there's this part that, you know, there's a technical part. That's mm -hmm. the software, the email hygiene. Mm -hmm. And then there's the education and awareness part, which is the phishing component, the simulation, because you're the one who has to not click. So every end user, so when you think about that, it, everyone in the university has an obligation to recognize a phishing potential incident when it's coming and mm -hmm. to know how to respond. Our obligation, along with providing that technical framework, is to make people aware and educate them on what this might look like. So cybersecurity is, cannot be successful by just building a moat around your organization. That will not work. Many, many organizations in the world, way more money than the University of Manitoba, and who spend it, mm -hmm. and they still get hacked. So the the issue is, is twofold. You need a good technical base, and you need people in your organization to recognize when something's happening that looks amiss and to respond appropriately. Mm -hmm. So that's what Cybersecurity Month is about, is to put some emphasis and some some uh, spotlight on that kind of we're all in this mm -hmm. um, and we all have a, a part to play. Yes. And what would you say is the importance of, you know, being cyberly aware, especially like in a research intensive institution like the U of M? The importance is, yes. is that it's actually, um, that's where, uh, so social phishing is a kind of social exploit. Mm -hmm. So people are the weakest link in any technology yes. uh, environment. And so the stronger the, your people are, the more aware they are, the more knowledgeable, the more you give them an opportunity to direct their questions and say, you know, this doesn't look right. Can you look mm -hmm. at it for me? That, that's why that's important is because your best defense is actually the people in your organization. We, we find that, you know, Patrick's been here now going on seven years and uh, we find that, um, you know, a gentle, continuous, Responding to incidents, using them as training and, and training opportunities, education opportunities is, is really kind of the best way. Okay, and um, as Chief Information Officer and as Director of the Information Security and Compliance, um, what are some things you're aiming to achieve in terms of, you know, protecting the university against cyber attacks? Sure. So, one, we, we too want to do everything we can not to have a cyber attack. Mm -hmm. 
in the context of the organization doing its work. So we can't make the organization so uh, lock it down so much mm -hmm. so it can't function as a research intensive university. Mm -hmm. So our objective is to find that balance between you know some things you need to do uh, and they're very effective mm -hmm. and other things you know we kind of understand the context maybe we don't need to do. So uh, Patrick can talk more about it, but a good example of that is our multi-factor authentication. Okay. So when we implemented that, we know that that is a highly effective way to reduce the number of uh, or the probability of a cyber uh, a breakthrough incident. Mm -hmm. And as people became more and more comfortable with that in your everyday life, so you use that when you go to the bank and you use your mm -hmm. PIN number. Or whenever anybody texts you something and say, you know, put this number in, validate you're a human being. Well, we've, you know, over the class the last six months, people have adopted that, um, you know, under the guise of the organization saying it's mandatory. And now it's seen as a very straightforward but highly effective way of reducing the amount of attacks. Mm -hmm. So that's one of our objectives is to strike that balance. And as things become more... As people become more comfortable in the digital world, mm -hmm. uh, maybe 10 years ago, MFA might have been seen as a bit of overkill. And we've got very, very good adoption of that. And, and that's an example of what we're trying to achieve. Mm -hmm. Enough cybersecurity so that we're safe enough, mm -hmm. uh, train our people up in the organization that they're aware, and allow the university to do the important work that it does. Mm -hmm. Okay, and I just have one more question. Um... Could you give me, are there any tips you would have for students in terms of just being more cyber aware and being more secure? So again, I think because our students are constantly attacked with, with the phishing emails, mm -hmm. the one thing I would say is pause, look at that email carefully. Typically, you'll find and recognize the, uh, the hacking type techniques that they use mm -hmm. uh, and, and don't click on it because what happens to the student is we have to um, lock down their account, get their password changed. It's an inconvenience to the student uh, when they're trying to get into classes and get into their, their information systems at the university. So mm -hmm. to me, it is, again, looking at that uh, email very carefully because mm -hmm. they must get, like the staff, faculty and staff, you know, many, many of them on a daily mm -hmm. basis. The, those are all my questions, but do you have anything that you think is important that you'd like to add for students to know? Well, um, you know, students, I think it's important that they have this awareness in all aspects of their life mm -hmm. because you're online in many, many different ways. So it's yes. not just your university sort of life that, that you need to be aware about. It's, mm -hmm. it's everywhere. So I think that's one thing I'd like students to be aware of. Two, um, don't underestimate the hackers. <laughs> they are very good at what they do and they will pick opportune times during the year when students might be under a lot of pressure or they might be in a rush or this sometimes can be the same thing and that's when they'll target us so mm -hmm. during exam time for example you know mm -hmm. students are really focused on that something comes across um yeah okay sure whatever so be aware of where you are because other people are as well mm -hmm. um and i guess the only other thing i would say is don't underestimate the volume as patrick said Look up your own stats. 94% of our internet traffic is spam. So of that 30 million messages we get a month, 27 million are spam. Wow. So that's a huge number. 
So what that means is, is that be aware, uh, don't feel bad about going, you know, I don't think this looks right. You know, I've, I've got six of these today. Yeah, you might have gotten six or 60 or 600. So, you know, in all the accounts that, that students have, right, you have a UM email, you have a Gmail account, maybe you have, you know, five Gmail accounts for all I know. Um, all of them are targets for these hackers and they have automation and volume on their side. So it does pay, it does pay dividends to pay attention. That's sort of my piece. The volume is just so great that it's very hard to kind of, you know, always be on alert. You want to scan, and especially during those periods when, when you're, when you're most vulnerable. Another thing I would like as a takeaway for students is if they are in doubt with anything, whether it's an email phishing they think it is, they're not sure, or any other security related question or concern, they can send into the abuse email address. And we will take a look at any one of those. We do that on a regular basis with faculty and staff, more so than students. But some students do use it. Uh, but I'd encourage them to use it if they're concerned. Okay, well, that concludes all my questions. Thank you so much for taking your time to speak to me. Um, it was a pleasure speaking to the both of you. Thanks very much for asking. No Have problem. A Have a lovely rest of your day. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Next up, we have our arts reporter, Jessie, talking to U of M alumna, Chimwemwe Undi, about her poetry that was recently published in Cantheus. How would you describe the poems for people who haven't read them before? I want to describe them both as love poems, but the second one, the poetic persona is dealing with some stuff, some existential angst and, <laughs> and climate grief. I would also describe them as love poems, um, but there are love poems that I um, have tried to make reflective of the world that we live in, which is to say that the happy ending uh, is probably going to be a really hot and scary one. So I... I'm really drawn in other people's poems to love poems that are sort of clear-eyed in that way of acknowledging that we live in complicated times and that love can exist uh, and does exist despite that. And so that's how I would, that, that is what I have tried to do through those poems. Do you think there's something to be gained from indulging in these like saccharine, sweet, lyrical love poems from time to time? I do. Hanif Abdurakhib writes about, has a series of poems called How Could Write About Flowers at a Time Like This, which sort of captured the sentiment of that, which is that I think that there is a, a space for escapism through whatever kind of fantasy suits you. So if that's like magic and orcs and wizards, then that's fine. And also if there is imagining a sort of perfect and unperturbed love, I think that's fine too. Um, my relationship with poetry is so about the world around me that it doesn't feel sort of um, realistic or even enjoyable to write in that way. But I think that there's a space. The poetic persona admits to not being able to lean optimistic. I wonder, though, do you think the poem ends in an optimistic place after, like, appraising the situation? 
how does it end? I don't want to read it to you because I feel like as a spoken word poet. Oh, goodness. I no, please feel feel welcome to you. I can also look them up. Yeah, I, I guess. I don't know if hope and optimism are the same thing necessarily. So I think it ends more hopeful than optimistic. I think those things can live side by side to hope against the speaker's own tendency to be gloom and doom, which I do share. I'll admit I share with the speaker. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And another question I had is more about form. I haven't actually encountered very many poems that are placed side by side in an anthology like this. Hmm. And I think it's kind of cool how the sejuras, like these separations between verses, feel like totally different kinds of pauses between the two. Like in the first poem, it seems like the poetic persona is savoring every moment with their paramour. Then Hmm. um, that very same device in the second poem, it feels like more anxiety-inducing or like the persona is trying to catch their breath. What do you make of that? Did you did you go in thinking like how can I expose the different like sides of the same coin or uh the process of writing for me is more about discovery than planning for better or worse. And so I think uh I'm really drawn to the couplet. I like uh you know the stanza is the little room. I love a room of just two um lines next to each other um separated from any- anything else and I I love that reading of the Sejura. Um and I'm glad that that <laughs> glad that that works in that way because that really does sort of mirror how the the poems work. So yeah, I I think I sort of the form becomes what it needs to be uh, as I write the poem, as opposed to in these at least there are occasions on which I've sort of come in with the idea of a form and worked backwards, which I I do really like to do. Um, but in these, I'm glad that that comes across the great reading of them. Thank you. So because they're in couplets, I think they traditionally lend themselves pretty well to reading aloud. And I mentioned earlier that uh, you are also a spoken word poet. (laughs) Um, For people who read your poems, they'll probably read them silently. Do you think there's something to be gained from readers reading your stuff aloud? Or is there maybe something like a a form of like your your voice that changes through writing like what do you make about the differences between um just reading uh written poetry or in hearing it uh i think there's certainly a place for both and i can say that the role that reading aloud plays in my own writing is that when i am after i've as i'm drafting but also once i'm sort of in the mode of of editing it or fiddling with it which is a mode that doesn't really end um, I read the poem aloud a lot because it, it feels odd for me to read aloud. That is a sign to me that something needs to be shifted. I, I do need it. Um, even if the reader who the poem reaches never reads the poems aloud, I need to know that when they do, uh, it won't be sort of awkward and stumbling over unless, you know, that might be a device that I'm using in the poem on purpose. Um, and I, I find that both when I read other people's poems aloud and when other people's poems are read aloud to me, I take more or differently from them. I understand things differently. Um, certain devices come across more clearly for me. Uh, so I find it really valuable. I take a poetry workshop 
or have taken it several times. It's like six weeks long. And in each class, we're given a package of poems and we always start by reading the poems aloud to one another, like people take turns. And even when I have gone through and annotated and thought through and worked with the poems, hearing them read aloud or reading them aloud really makes a difference for me. And then this is more of me like giving a fan comment. One of the the lines that really resonated with me, or one of the couplets was, I read weather and the parable of the sower in one hot month, and I worried about making lamps from oil-packed tuna, mostly so that I could look at you. And I think I had, I read this really beat up copy from the library of Parable of the Sower last year during that horrible heat wave. And uh, I just felt completely burdened by (laughs) climate grief. Um, And then I think in the same I think a couple of lines later, the poetic persona is commenting on how the the sky is like orange and this feels like the end times. And I, I completely, I felt like very seen, I guess. It was, I hadn't seen anyone else describe apocalypse that way. And it was, I wasn't expecting to encounter like a kindred spirit in a, in a, in an epithelium, <laughs> you know? <laughs> I'm so glad. That's lovely. <laughs> so I have a couple more questions. What do you hope readers will take away from your poetry? What do I hope readers will take away from my poetry? I think that's a very good question. I don't know that I have a very good answer for it. Um, I take from other people's poems exactly what you described. I am startled at how often I encounter myself in poems by people that I think I have nothing in common with um, or would assume that I have nothing in common with who notice the same small, odd things and feel the same joys and griefs uh, that I do and I I hope that that is that's why that comment is so lovely because I I hope that the sort of um, tiny details that I collect throughout my day uh, and then that sort of coalesce into poems resonate with other people too and and comfort them even if the comfort is just knowing that you're standing next to somebody else and not sort of all by yourself uh, (laughs) and you're feeling yeah, I like that that the the line of the speaker about weather and parable of the sower is like quite um is a literal <laughs> thing from my own life and that I was trying to navigate my own climate anxiety and multiplied it <laughs> reading about other people's uh read parable of the sower and had like a pretty close to a major breakdown of being like this is <laughs> this is really not that far off. When you were writing this, it must have felt like a fantasy, but it does not feel that way right now. This feels entirely possible. Uh, Like, sued. So, yeah, yeah, I mean, that that poem is like the most joyful thing that I could wring out of reading, out of that experience. But, um, yeah, I think, like you, other people who have read either of those books both of which I recommend um will kind of see will resonate with how anxious and sad the speaker is that was a very long answer that was a good answer though it's it's very validating to know other people were completely ruined by parallel <laughs> <laughs> I I think if I had known also that you know what was going to unfold with Roe v. Wade the, the following year. I might I might have held off on reading it for. I mean, again, I also recommend it, but I might have held off for a while until I was yeah. more stable. <laughs> Does not seem like there's going to be a better time to read it, but um, 
I, I mean, I'm glad I did. It's a it's a well written and and great book. But yeah, that really messed with me. So my last question is, I think hopefully a bit easier. Is there any other are there any other local poets in Winnipeg or people who are from the U of M who you think I should uh, look into? This work you think I should look into from the U of M? Um, well, Winnipeg, I would say Hannah Green has a book coming out next year with House of Anansi, who will also be my publisher, called Xanax Cowboy. And I am extremely excited for that book. I'm really, really looking forward to it. Who else is in Winnipeg? I feel so, um, like, not separated from people, but sort of um, location has collapsed in the last two years, and now I can't remember where people are from. Um, So I'll, I'll leave you with Hannah. I think Hannah... You just mentioned that you were getting published through House of Anansi. Are you? Do you have a poetry collection coming out? I should know this, but <laughs> I well, it hasn't been announced. I have a poetry collection coming out in twenty twenty four with House of Anansi. Uh, Congratulations! My first. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, I'm excited for it. Yeah, I am too. Just a reminder that if you ever have any suggestions or feedback for people who you'd like to see on the podcast, if you'd like to be on the podcast, if you want to send in any of your poetry, short stories, any of those types of things, please email me at audio at themanitoban.com. You can find Tobin Talks Thursdays at 1130 on 101.5 FM radio, which is UMFM radio, and you can listen to us anytime on all of your podcast streaming services, such as Spotify and Apple Podcasts. That's it for today, and we'll see you on the next episode of Tobin Talks.